You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel. And we got a new guest host this week again. This is a reunion. It is. Hi. Hi, Ira. <laughs> we have Doreen St. Felix here. Again, you've been on Keep It before. I have. They know who you are. Yeah, a few years ago now, right? I think yeah. it was a couple of years ago. And I think we might have had Ira a podcast a while ago. I don't remember. Speed <laughs> dial. <laughs> it was a fever dream. Our podcast about sex where we never talked about sex. <laughs> <laughs> the concept of speed dial was, we first of all, we were at MTV News. R.I.P. Mm. Um, although I think it's back. MTV News know. is still operating. <laughs> <laughs> Everything at MTV is sort of like in flux and constantly existing and not existing and also constantly vintage and not vintage. Like you can't tell when they're embracing the past or the present or what. I mean, they didn't do a damn thing for their 20th anniversary. Sorry, was it 30th anniversary? 40th. This year? Sorry, 40th. They were playing Ridiculousness all day. Yeah. On their channel. That was how they celebrated changing the culture. Um, But our podcast was called Speed Dial, and the concept was we were two friends calling each other from different coasts and catching up. It was a cute little voicemail segment at the beginning of each episode. And I guess we were supposed to talk about dating and sex, too. But we never did. Oh, well, let me say something. If you talk about (laughs) sex for like whatever, 90 minutes in a row or two hours, unfortunately, it is tedious as a subject. It's really, you know, the act itself that's the main event. So I actually applaud this move. Thank you for your retroactive (laughs) approval. No problem. (laughs) We we needed you six years ago. But we're here now. (laughs) <laughs> we are. Um, and, you know, you're killing things at Miss New Yorker. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Having a great time. I became the television critic uh, in February of 2020. I don't know if you guys know what was happening around that time. <laughs> um, <laughs> Laura so Dern winning an Oscar. Yes. <laughs> True. And then that unleashed this new timeline. Um, but, yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you both today. I've been a fan for many years. Um, yeah, let's get to it. Well, we are going to talk about some TV because The White Lotus dropped its finale and um, people have opinions. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about Lizzo. She's got a new song out with Cardi B because you can't drop a new single this year without it featuring Cardi B, apparently. And we have an interview with Brett Goldstein from... Ted Lasso that Lewis and I tackled. Uh, Brett Goldstein is a wonderful man. I was going to say, uh, more like Brett Goldtrove, because every interview question was like, wow, cool person. Like Every, every time Ira and I would like exchange a glance and 
be like, well, wasn't that nice? Listen, he may be the hottest man on the show. I'm sorry, Jason Sudeikis. But oh, I mean, I don't know that this is really up for debate. I would have to agree with you. Yeah, I've heard that he's quite different from his character Roy Kent. He is who's like you know the resident grump, but he like majored in feminism or something like that in college. Yeah. He's like jovial and a comedian and obsessed with movies and has a um, Muppets like takes Manhattan poster uh, in his room. So No, it was just what the doctor ordered. Sometimes you have people on a podcast and like a pop culture podcast and, you know, they're just not interested in pop culture. So we have to talk about whatever it is they're doing. And in this case, he hit, he brought up Julie Christie. I was like holding the wall, like begging <laughs> for mercy from his references. I was so thrilled. <laughs> uh, so we have that interview coming up as well. And we'll be right back for more Keep It. On Sunday, we checked out of the White Lotus for the last time, at least until season two. So just so y'all know, that means we're about to talk about White Lotus, the finale. So if you have not watched it yet, skip ahead and stay out of my DMs about spoilers. So from the second a quartz was rolled onto the plane in the premiere, takes started rolling on Twitter. People started saying who was dead. Um, people were talking about whether or not this is a satire, whether or not it's a self-aware takedown of colonialism, or is it actually just a product of colonialism itself? So, White Lotus, what are y'all feeling about it? Can I just say that I hate that binary thinking? I don't like binaries. Put me down mm-hmm. as not liking binaries. Mm. Okay. The, the hottest take. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Which is to say, I watched that show on in one fell swoop because I had the screeners because I'm really important because I'm a TV critic. Mm. And mm. the show is actually not telling you to watch it as a satire, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of like there are certain satirical notes when you see the first few episodes, you meet some characters who feel like caricatures. And then Mike White, as he always does, this affection kind of arises, right? And you start to see, for instance, Tanya McClaud Jennifer Coolidge's character as someone with an inner life and so on and so forth. And so I just get a little frustrated when maybe it's not frustration. I'm certainly interested in the idea of the show's meta relationship to colonialism, but I think it's kind of like a show at the end of the day and it's not supposed to Mm -hmm. be performing this takedown action or mechanism or appraising of, you know, like the white liberal imagination. I think it's just like a little bit smarter than people are maybe diluting it to be online. But that's just my thought. Mm. It's also, to me, like, I guess the suspense of the show is the sense that all the characters will probably interact in one way or another. And so I found myself kind of guessing, like, oh, how will Jennifer Coolidge and this kid interact? Or what, you know, like, you're kind of guessing, like, how these uh, storylines will intertwine. And I feel like that's more where my head is at than actually a meta-narrative, just because these people are so unpredictably, in some cases, self-absorbed, but also like occasionally showing heart or whatever, that I'm predicting where the explosions will happen more than I'm having really anything else smarter to say about it. So it's more like a reality show. You know, I'm, I'm more thinking like, how will these people like blow up at each other? Well, I mean, the connection to a reality show is 
one of the important pieces of the puzzle, mostly because Mike White loves Survivor and has been on it. And he brings it up like it's, you know, Dostoevsky every time he does like a, uh, <laughs> an interview. He's like... <laughs> Um, and he famously came in second on the David versus Goliath season um, to Nick. And I found the series almost sort of like he was just writing Survivor. Mm-hmm. You know, we know he wrote it in a few yeah, weeks. Yeah. It was him picking like a tropical location. And he just loves characters. The one thing I love about Mike White's shows is that like he likes wacky sort of like you said almost satirical characters that sort of reveal themselves like the heart behind them even the awful characters towards the end and I sort of feel like Armand was a representation for himself and him sort of like battling with um, Jake Lacey's character um, Shane the entire time was sort of him replicating his survivor time and like Shane winning at the end was sort of like Nick beating him um, but that said, I really liked this gay character in it. I thought that he was really interesting and something we sort of haven't seen, sort of like Murray Bartlett getting to play a gay Breaking Bad. But I will say that I'm not worried about the whole, like, is it satirizing or, like, taking down white people? Because too many people expect shows with white cast to do that now, as if, Every white creator needs to be invested in creating a show that is going to skewer whiteness in general. I mean, just watch Succession if you want to see that. (laughs) Um, But as a show, I found it a little bit wanting. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed the show, but if you even watch it as just a show, I feel like every beat in every episode and every story was 80% predictable. That's really interesting. I have been thinking of the White Lotus as a very ornate experiment in Mike White's oeuvre because he's a really fascinating creator because this is someone who like School of Rock, Dawson's Mm -hmm. Creek. He has made some of the most mainstream of mainstream television and film and people like at the same time don't really know who he is. People who like Mm -hmm. aren't pop culture obsessives. And then he's made shows like Enlightened, which I mean, bring it back. Honestly, yeah, HBO. <laughs> it's the Renaissance. It's the perfect time. That's a show where, like, part of the reason why it was canceled was that people didn't really watch it. And so I think The mm-hmm. White Lotus is ending up ensnared even in this strange attention economy where, like, Mike White, his shows or his films, like, that are much more subtle or campier or feel like more art house are now getting an attention that they weren't maybe necessarily, like, created for. This is mm-hmm. so clearly... An idea that he had, HBO approached him, he wrote it, he directed all the episodes, they shot it in one location, four seasons in Hawaii, and it has both the fortune and the misfortune of coming out during a time where people, their parasocial relationships to television is just off the charts, because that's kind of all they've been doing for a year and a half. Like, I don't know, I've been watching people sort of get really angry at these characters. Paula is an example of someone that... Mm. People are Natasha very... Rothwell. No, not no, Paul Paula is Brittany Paul... O'Grady. Oh, yes, yes. Sydney Sweeney's friend. Oh, not Paul... all black women look okay. the same. <laughs> First of all, you know, I'm, you know, I watch so much TV that I'm like a I black know. auntie when I watch it. I just be like, <laughs> oh, you know, 
Paula was over there talking to Connie Britton. Uh, you know, I remember characters by their actor's name the or their first name. Well, by the way, this show is like a prime example of, oh, wait, that's the character's name? Like when you said that Jennifer Coolidge's character is named Tanya, I'm like, well, are you sure? That's It is Tanya. Wow. I yeah. mean, going back to Big Little Lies, I feel like people know half the cast name. Right, and Renata, just, Renata, yeah. and Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which I love that slippage. You know, like Mike White really understands white women. He just like mm. picks women that people already have so much like spiritual investment in. And when you're watching Tanya, you're like, but that's also Jennifer. You know, is Jennifer like mm-hmm. getting out something like a revenge fantasy for the way that she's been sequestered by Hollywood? In the past mm-hmm. 30 years, like, I'm going to read so into it, you know? <laughs> and he knows that. He has me. Mm-hmm. Right. I was going to say, I want to know if Molly Shannon has some, like, residual rage, which I believe is channeled pretty well through this character. I wouldn't say it's perfect casting. There are, per- I think, actresses who do better the thing of, like, oh, I'm evil. I'm, like, leaning in and, like, getting in your face about how bad a person I am. But Molly Shannon just has a very inherent quaintness that makes the character a little bit more interesting, even though I don't know if I love the casting. But we can, anyway. I adore Molly Shannon, but I agree. I did not like her in that role. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, It sort of didn't jive with who I felt his mother was supposed to be. Right. uh, Uh Based on how he was acting. But uh, what were you saying about Paula? Well, so Paula is someone who... Red herring is maybe like too strong of a term to use, but people became really attached to her when they were watching the first few episodes because Mm -hmm. she felt like a surrogate for the viewer. One, Mm -hmm. because she was non-white. Two, because she seemed to be not as wealthy as the Mossbacker family, who's kind Mm -hmm. of like a cross between like Goop and the Yahoo lady CEO, (laughs) played by (laughs) Connie Britton. Um, Everyone thought she was Sarah Sandberg, and I saw like theories that Steve Zahn was gonna die, oh, like Sheryl Sandberg's husband died oh, my on vacation. God. <laughs> oh, that was our my. that was our friend Chris Schleicher. <laughs> that is out of pocket, even for Facebook, the most evil entity on earth. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Paula, you know, she was the thing that made watching the show bearable, and then she does something at the end of the series, that is completely unbearable. Some people might argue the most immoral act in the show. And Mm. people got mad at her, and people are still really mad at her. And they're just like, as a woman of color, like, how could you send this, like, native Hawaiian to jail or whatever? (sighs) And it's like, the show (laughs) is such a great examination of the differences or the space between what it is that people do and how they act. Yes. Mm. What it is that they think and what they're you know, record show. We all talk one way. We all are really righteous, but we all do some shit that doesn't like at all align with, you know, the politics that we proclaim to subscribe to. I love that because, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, like, especially on the internet, people love to get into specific like binaries of like, well, Take, for instance, even, like, the Z-Way question, you know, of, like, um, would you call the police on, like, a black person? Like, it's funny in theory, right? And everyone on the internet is like, oh, you know, like, yeah, you can't call the police on the black people, like, doing this, etc. But it's like, okay, if a black man is breaking in your home with a gun about to kill you or a knife, you know, like, if you're pressed in this situation, what are you going to do? And I think a lot of people on the internet try to create like 
X-Men Danger Room games for life of what they know that they would do when you know that if any of the like fake scenarios people come up with on the internet are not how they're actually going to act in real life. We saw that with COVID. Mm. The way that people talk about rules and what they should be doing and how other people should be doing and then you've seen a year or like you see a friend of the party like when it's quarantine or you're doing this it's like everyone acts differently when this stuff happens so I think it's very silly to have Paula sitting there thinking well you know like I can't get a native islander arrested (laughs) by getting him involved in a crime you know she's not sitting there and thinking how people are going to react online um, or morally to what she's trying to accomplish. I do want to thank uh, both her and Sydney Sweeney, though, for, <laughs> specifically for their facial reactions throughout the entire show. I mean, I'm not saying I'm somebody when I watch a TV show, I need to see my reactions soundboarded exactly or whatever. But man, just the gift worthiness of looking at Connie Britton with like an <laughs> eyelid moving down or, or, or like the grimace dropping. It's just like really subtle, but like, harsh acting that I think are maybe the most fun acting moments in the whole show, actually, even though people get lots of great character revealing monologues, etc. I would agree. And I think I also want to talk about Fred Hetchinger. He plays Quinn and Quinn ends up being in the finale, sort of the symbol. I think he's like a melancholic symbol of escape, right? Mm-hmm. I think that the three of them, him, Sydney, and Brittany, are kind of like this incredible triptych of like what Gen Z actually is. Like Gossip Girl is like totally didactic, doesn't have the characters like actually speaking like people. And Girl. through these, in some ways, we're not we're not talking about Gossip Girl. I'm just using it to make my point. We're not going there. But through these almost like non-verbal or like half-verbal performances, we just get so much fuller of a portrait of mm-hmm. this generation, especially because they're interacting with people of a different generation, like Connie. How about watching people think is so much fun? And I think that's a key part of this show that is extra compelling, is even when it's not, you know, people complain it doesn't have enough plot or there's not enough going on. But honestly, it's always giving you something to look at, whether it's somebody giving, you know, a sarcastic response or mm-hmm. just thinking for an extra second, which is uh, such a pleasure to see. Uh, and it's such a good Lewis, we know of, you love watching white women think. Oh, well, That's the entire reason you like sharp objects. Oh, please. Oh, people well, sitting it, in cars thinking that boring-ass show. Especially if there's like the, the vague idea of old tears on their face, not even new tears. They've been crying for a while. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, or Kate Blanchett, the world's slowest smiler, which is my favorite thing about her. Anyway, but that's, I think we specifically got a lot of that in this show, which is a great entry in what I will call incompetence vaudeville, like Veep and Succession. Mm. Should we discuss, though, as much as we all seem to be fans of the show, should we discuss some of the criticisms regarding kind of like the paradox of making a show about people who are, you know, terminally tied to their wealth? And setting it on the island of Hawaii. And filming it there. During the <laughs> so, pandemic. Yes. Oh, right. When so many native Hawaiians had been telling tourists to not come because they were like literally bringing infection um, to their home. And there were some like music drops in the show that are outside of Cristobal's like amazing, creepy, eerie score that felt a little like, oh, are you just playing this like 
kind of hokey song that everyone associates with Hawaii. Mm. There, there were just a few moments where I was like, mm, Mike White's not like completely confident or not completely owning mm-hmm. or self-indicting himself as a creator. And like Kai also is a character that I just thought was done no justice. He has no... I don't even mind that he disappears. Mm -hmm. It's in keeping with the tenor of the story, but his backstory that his family, like, owned the land that Mm -hmm. the hotel was on, it was just, like, really trite, really simple. And I think that there's... You have to figure out, okay, these people can't be at the center of the story, right? I just haven't created the show for that to happen. But how can I give them enough depth that even in their smallness, they are like equally contending with the largest of someone like Tanya or the other characters. And I felt that that wasn't done well. I think it sort of goes to sort of just like Mike White's telling of the story um, and just sort of how these cultures have been entrenched in American popular culture. Because like, even if he was wanting to like do a good thing here, I did agree about the music. It constantly felt like I was watching like, Hawaii Five O, like the original, <laughs> you know, when there'd be like something mysterious happening on the island, and you hear this sort of music. Even the theme song is, uh, which is a banger. But you know, like so much of the music feels, you know, sort of like when you're watching like Betty Davis in the Letter, and you start hearing Oriental music. You know, yep. when like the like the Asian woman um, shows up to curse her. It felt very much that and. Yeah, not even just Kai disappearing, the girl disappearing who gave birth in the first episode, too. And I get that. I want to say that I feel like you can't have it both ways if you're Mike White. Like, in one way, the show doesn't have to be commenting specifically on white people and trying to tear down, like, this colonialist system. But then if you also want to say that the point of the story is that these white people are taking over, and then so that's why the other characters drop out then it just doesn't work for me. And that's when I sort of meant that it felt unfulfilling to me in the end because I know that he likes genre. I've talked about this on the show before. Like, he had that 2000 um, Fox show that got canceled, Pasadena, with um, Dana Delaney that was like a primetime soap. You know, like, we know that he likes that kind of stuff. And I felt like as a show with, like, a mystery in the beginning and that was soapy and having characters interact it sort of just went to an ending that you sort of expected, especially like Natasha Rothwell and Jennifer Coolidge. I think everybody saw where that story Definitely. was going to be going. Mm-hmm. At the mm-hmm. end, we saw she was going to be hurt when she changed her mind about doing the spa. So I was just thinking, like, why not as a writer, even if you're getting us to that conclusion and that's what you want to say, why not surprise us a bit more in that story? Yeah, well, I will say, I think a lot of the strengths of the show are that what occurs, I don't know that I always expect it, but in retrospect, it feels inevitable, which is just a feeling I like, period. Like, I, the movie that comes to mind is if you've ever seen Two Days, One Night with Marion Cotillard, she's fighting to save her job, and what happens at the end of the movie, I wouldn't have written that way, and yet it feels true to life, and I feel like that is true about a lot of what happens in the show. That said, the least believable part of the show is Natasha Rothwell's character just signing on to this, like, hokey person, you know, who is never once credible just as, like, a uh, 
a human being that you would believe anything from. You know, she's like wandering into every shot. She's like drowsy constantly. Though, by the way, Natasha Rothwell's performance then became sort of um, the surprising focal point of the finale for me. I really was most invested in her character at the end, I think. Yeah, well, I think that there was an interview that Mike White did with Vulture, too, where he was just talking about this was how he was telling this story, just because um, I think people were expecting him to give sort of a enlightened sort of storyline where, you know, like that was Amy Jellicoe, like fighting for like justice constantly and trying to like unravel pieces. Uh, and I think he says that like a show like that would be too much like trying to play to the zeitgeist now. And I think maybe, you know, the reception to that maybe has just gotten into his head because I feel like enlightened as much as it almost seems in line with like sort of like internet social justice now, like that's not that show at all. And I felt like Enlightened was a show about people, especially her, trying to make herself a better human being. Um, you know, like I really connected with that part of that character. Uh, and I thought it always went to a lot of surprising emotional places. And ultimately, I just feel like I wasn't surprised emotionally a lot during The White Lotus is all. But it was fun. Ultimately, who was surprised that Murray was the one who died? Like, doesn't that feel so right? Like, it had to have been him. And paralleling that, who was surprised that Rachel stayed with Shane? Right. N nobody. She yeah. made the decision that she had already made. <laughs> she <Yeah>. got married <laughs> like before. Why would yeah. she? <laughs> the show starts with her having a, a conversation with him that would turn most people away. So the fact that she would even stay through that seemed to indicate, all right, she can... Um, bear a lot of him yeah um actually before we even wrap on that i want to say that one of the most actual surprising moments of the series which was a great character moment i feel was when she approached connie Britton and was like i wrote about you <laughs> yes and then was explaining it and then connie Britton was like oh no you're a shitty writer <laughs> that was a completely surprising moment but also felt so in character for both of them uh, and i wish i wish i had had more scenes like that in the finale also that feels very um keyed into how mike white understands the internet too just the conversation about the kinds of pieces alexandra daddario had been writing you know i mean i feel like that's the kind of thing that might warrant one or two dismissive jokes on other shows whereas they kind of really got into the specific nature of the uh fluff piece she had written and i was uh pleased to realize the show was literate in that. Yeah, I mean, even shout out to making relatable Gen Z characters and not having an older character even use the term Gen Z mm. or millennial and have dumb jokes like that. So, all right. White Lotus was um, not quite white excellence for me. Uh, <laughs> what's right below excellence, Doreen? Because we coined this term, didn't we? I know, we coined white excellence. What were we talking about? I think I'm embarrassed to say, but I think it was... Stranger Things. Oh, very good. Very good. Very season good. one. Stranger Things season one Listen, was white excellence. Trump was president. It was a different time. It, but I, I will agree. It was white pastiche excellence. I would argue white lotus is white excellence. But if you want maybe a different term, we could say white proficiency. <laughs> okay. That doesn't work. It We're did what needed to be done. <laughs> Whitely. Yeah. And that's a wrap it, on that. Yes, it understood the white assignment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're back. Lewis and I talked to Brett Goldstein about Ted Lasso and movies. 
Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And (laughs) I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain Mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. So our guest today has what you would call a lot of multi-hyphenates, an actor, a comedian, a writer, and podcaster who is lucky enough not to be American. (laughs) You know him from Ted Lasso. Please welcome AFC Richmond's own Roy Kent, Brett Goldstein. How are you? Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I have... um, been a Ted Lasso fan. Mm-hmm. I was about to say since season one, but only season one has dropped so far. Um, it's but a long I've been, time, man, you're committed. You know, <laughs> uh, I think I think I watched it all after New Year's Eve. Uh, I needed something oh, wow. to do. While I was hungover. Watched it all. Were you want to come down? I was. I definitely <laughs> was. And now um, I'm excited to blow through season two as well. So are you going to get absolutely uh, hammered before you watch it, watch the second season as well? Probably, you know, so I can have the same, um, you know, sort of effect of it sort of curing my hangover. You like to make it hard for us, right? You (laughs) want to put us in the worst situation. Okay, I got it. Well, it does feel like that's like 90% of TV now is like, whenever you're in the mood to just give up your entire life to a series for like one and a quarter days, like, yeah, that's how you take it in now. It's crazy, isn't it? It really is. I don't, have to, I don't have time to watch all this stuff. I'm a mate. When people say, have you watched this thing? I'm like, when? Don't you have the time? You, you have to have New Year's Day. I need to set aside New Year's Day. That's the only time, yeah. That's Absolutely. how I feel about podcasts, too. It's like, I guess people drive to work for six hours a day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why people commute. When people tell us they listen to ours, like, chunks in a row, like, they save up episodes and listen to them all at once, I have no idea how, um, but I'm glad they do. I thought you were going to say, it makes me not respect them. (laughs) (laughs) Our listeners already know I don't respect them. (laughs) This is a contempt-based podcast. Yeah. Now, first of all, I I, I must bring up, it's very unusual to be nominated with 
so many of your own cast members on a TV mm. show, let alone in your category. Yeah. Uh, you're nominated with three other people. Is there a fun sense of competition there? Because I would be vicious in sending them like Joker-style ransom notes. Oh, listen, on the one hand, it's beautiful that we're all nominated together because it feels very Ted Lasso, like that we're nominated as a team. It feels like that is the right way. And if I'm honest, I wouldn't have felt comfortable if one of us had been nominated without the other. So it's nice like that. But on the other hand... I don't know if I've put this to them yet, but this is what what I plan to do is I do plan to wrestle them (laughs) on Emmy night and whoever wins can go up to the podium. But then I realized we might, you know, none of us might win, but either way, whoever wins in the wrestle, they're the true winner. (laughs) Well, Ira and I know all about the 1985 Best Supporting Actress Oscar where the two girls from the color purple lost to Angelica Houston. So I'm just saying it could happen to you. Uh, yeah. Angelica Houston could turn up and take the best boy out to Speaking of your nominations and Ted Lasso. Speaking of Angelica Houston. Uh, oh, I'm, well, I'm, I'm willing know, we, to go there. Don't worry. We so. could go there. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm still obsessed with her feud with Oprah. <laughs> oh, I didn't know she had a feud with Oprah. Oh, yes. What? Angelica won. Yes, and ran into Oprah at a party. Mm. And I forget who Angelica Houston was having a conversation with, um, but Oprah just like turns her back to Angelica during this conversation and completely cuts her out of the convo. And um, I guess they haven't talked since. And she's never been on her show. This is like Angelica Houston does like very candid interviews like every six months where she brings this up anyway. We enjoy it, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So has Oprah never seen The Addams Family? Nothing. This is awful. Enemies a Love Story. It's a good Angelica Houston movie. Anyway, Uh, we can move on with this conversation. I'm sorry. Can we? I am sad that she's never seen The Witches. Yeah, come on. Yeah, The Witches and Addams Family Values, her greatest work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But your show, you are not only acting in it, Mm -hmm. but you wrote on it as well. Correct. And I'd love to know the process of writing on the show, you know, finding people to cast in the show, but then you Mm -hmm. um, finding a way to make sure you're the only person who's right for that role. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I did is I ran interference at the office. So anytime casting tapes came in for Roy... I would burn them and go, weird, weird, we're not getting any of these tapes. I hear people are auditioning, but we just don't seem to be seeing any. You know how I got the part. You know this story? You must know. Do I? I don't. I was working on in the writer's room and I was writing on it and I felt very, very strongly. But halfway through the process, I was like, fucking hell, I really understand Roy. I really think I should play Roy. I feel like, and I've never felt it before so strongly with a character where it was like, I'll have to play Roy or I'm going to burn this place down. <laughs> but I also knew no one was thinking of me for Roy because previous to Roy, I've kind of a little bit been typecast, I think, certainly in England, as playing sort of sweet, nice, soft characters. So I knew that the type that I had been playing, no one's thinking of me for Roy. And I also didn't want to make anyone uncomfortable. You know, we're working together. It's awkward if you go, I'd like to be, you know, I'd be like, who's this dickhead? <laughs> so I waited until the end of the writer's room and I filmed myself doing five scenes as Roy. And I sent an email and I said, thanks very much, I've loved this. I think been thinking for a while that I could play Roy, but I also know no one's thinking of me for Roy. If this is awkward that I've even sent this to you, or it's shit, you can pretend you never got this email and I will never ever ask if you got it. If on the other hand you like it, here are, here are five scenes as me as Roy. Thank you very much. And let's never speak of this again. <laughs> and, uh, and then about two, I just think they decided 
oh, it's hard work looking for people, isn't it? Let's just go with this guy. And um, luckily, about two in the morning, I got an email saying, this is fucking great. And then here I am. And I'm very, 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 very lucky. I love that. But like, which parts did you identify with more? Like, if, like for instance, I'm a writer. If, if I'm writing about like a famous mm-hmm. basketball player, I'm like, not like... And now it's my turn to play that role. Like, suddenly I will learn basketball. That's, the Larry Bird biopic. That's a good point. You're, yeah, right. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Luke Longley of the Chicago Bulls. Yes. Yeah. I would watch that. I want you and Angelica Houston oh. in that film. Oh, your lips to God's it. ears. This is why we're doing this. <laughs> the shame of it is April won't be at the premiere. You know it. I know it. <laughs> Which part of it? It was, it was to do with, it was a couple of things. One was... I had actually grown up with professional footballers, like family friends of us were professional footballers, so I knew quite a lot of them. And I'd also seen the tragedy of it. I felt the tragedy of Roy, the fact that, you know, he's a footballer and that's all he knows and all he is, and he's ageing, and there's nothing you can do about that. And there's no part of him that wants to not play football, but it's coming. And that's sort of tragic, and I think it's relatable in any form. You know, ageing is sad. (laughs) You know, it's like you don't... There are things you want to do that you no longer can do, and that's awful. So there was that side of it. But it was also the anger, like, you know, truth be told, I'm fucking angry all the time. (laughs) And so I I very much tapped into that. And uh, and the thing, I think it was around the the scene with... uh, It's in episode five, and it's the scene where he scares Keely in the parking lot and she you know he's behind her and she goes oh and he goes did I scare you and she goes yeah you snuck up on a woman in a car park well done (laughs) (laughs) real achievement and sort of within that I was like I can see how to do all this in hindsight it's all very weird because it felt really like a pull like I had to do this so I'm amazed it happened you know something that I think is interesting about this show is Something that runs contrary to what you just said, which is you were used to playing nice people and you play this like kind of mm. asshole person. Whereas Jason Sudeikis, to me, yeah. if I feel like if I ran into him, he could like lay me out with three quick insults. That's just my feeling I have about him. <laughs> and then when I watch him on the show, obviously he has this like Pollyanna energy. Yeah. So when mm. you know someone says cut and he's interacting with you, do you then get this other half of... He'll do three insults for everyone in the room immediately between takes. Between every take. It's exhausting. It's exhausting for him because if we do 10 takes, that's like 30 insults per person in the wow. room. Wow. He's like uh, uh, Phyllis Diller. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. I'd never thought of it like that, but I think you're right. I think both Jason and I, you're talking about the inverse. It's like he knew what he had inside him and it was much nicer, warmer, philosophical, deep, kind... All the all the other words, <laughs> and maybe he hadn't had a chance to express that in characters he played. Whereas I was the opposite. I felt like no, I'm fucking angry, and I could kill everyone, and <laughs> I haven't had the chance to express that. Now, have you interacted with Jason since the nomination, since the GQ cover, since the internet has decided mm-hmm. that Jason is the hottest person of 2021? I have. And what is that Jason like now? Because <laughs> um, I'm in agreement. Now, I'm in agreement, but not because of this show. I remember seeing him at the Black Klansman premiere, and everyone was dressed up in like nice Hollywood clothes, and he was wearing like Air Force Ones and like a hoodie. And I was like, he's the best dressed person here. I think I love Jason Sudeikis. <laughs> You're right. You're right, too. I wish I could tell you that now he won't look anyone in the eye and. Uh, we are all supposed to refer to him as God, but he really is is no different since this has happened. I mean, the the truth is, he's very philosophical and, and aware as a creative. It's like, as wonderful as all this stuff is, and it truly is wonderful, you also can't get caught up in it or you'd go insane. 
if you start, you know, yeah, and it would stop you being good at the thing you're doing because you'd start thinking, yes, I am. I am important and I am the best. <laughs> and suddenly you're an idiot and you can't write. And so he has remained as grounded as he was. So far, let's see. <laughs> Wait till he wins. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the show took two seconds to become the comedy that everybody has seen. It's like the, the Shit's Creek of two years ago or whatever, where That's like funny. a show... I thought was basically specifically for me, like, oh, Catherine O'Hara's in it. Like, thank you, television, for creating something for me. And then everybody else who was like kind of barely familiar with comedy was suddenly yeah. way more familiar with it than I was. Do you feel like, yeah. how, what's it like to have that sudden impact? I mean, your life just must be completely different. It's quite hard to quantify in terms of when, when the show came out, we were in the middle of writing season two, but we were also in the middle of a lockdown. And so I was in England in my attic just zooming in like we, we were all on a zoom for this writer's room and and I was just in my tiny attic with my Muppets poster and bullet holes and just me and the t- 12 boxes on the screen <laughs> you know the show came out and we saw because the only way really you could tell anything was the internet you know we're seeing on social media how how many people started to like it and how that seemed to sort of spread and that was really lovely to see but also surreal because I'm still in my attic and I haven't seen anyone you know it's like Mm -hmm. nothing's changed you just got more nice writing on the screen in front of you that's what's changed (laughs) yeah it's it's hard to get your head around because it feels so unreal and I'm certainly not in any way used to it and I don't think it's normal (laughs) uh, but I you know the truth is look we've come to America to do for the premiere of season two and we're now in New York and like for the first time you know you're walking around and there's people around and we have definitely been recognised an awful lot, which is new and kind of weird, but everyone's been very, very nice about the show. So you sort of go, oh, right, it, I guess it, oh, right, it is a, it is a thing, is it? Okay. <laughs> but it's, you know, just odd. Mm. Very, very nice and very, very odd. <laughs> Switching gears a bit, your podcast mm-hmm. is Films to be Buried With, mm-hmm. um, which we also started this podcast in like 2018. So I know what it's like to yeah, right. be doing something for almost four years. I want to ask, what about films made you want to start this podcast? And like, um, are you still having fun with the questions that you ask your guests like still like four years into this show? It, it was an idea I'd had for a while and I thought I'll give it a go. And thankfully it seemed to work. But part of the like mission of the podcast, if there's a mission, which there is, <laughs> the mission was to remind people about the cinema because I was getting stressed. As someone who loves the cinema and sees it as like church, for me, it's like, that's my sanctuary. I go to the cinema. Mm-hmm. As much as it's great, all the streaming services and the fact that they're being very generous with budgets and allowing artists to make films and stuff, I do worry about cinema itself not surviving because I think it's very important and I think it is different from sitting in your house watching something on your screen or your laptop or your tv and so part of the kind of mission statement of the show was to have people talking passionately about films and their experience of watching films not just something you yeah yeah I saw that film it's like what happened where were you and what was around it and reminding people of the kind of magic of cinema that was one thing. The other part of it, and, and I think what keeps it interesting for me, is what I didn't realise, and it's brilliant, <laughs> and I'd love to claim, like, I'm a genius for coming up with it, but I didn't realise until I did it that actually, as a kind of interview show, it's really interesting because people are very revealing about themselves in a way they perhaps wouldn't normally be. Because we're talking about films, what we're actually talking about is their life. So when I say, what's the film that scared you the most? 
we're often talking about what scares you the most. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? There's a reason that that type of film scares you. So in terms of like connecting with people and learning about real stuff with them, that's the best bit of it and why it's still interesting to me. What movies are you surprised come up the most? And also, are there movies you wish would come up more and it's depressing that more people haven't mm-hmm. seen them? Well, it is, it's, it is interesting how often the same films come up and it sort of shows you how, how culture works, I guess, and how, you know, I had to ban people from talking about it because it came up so often. But the film E.T. Mm. <laughs> has affected so many people. Like, including myself, like, I find E.T. incredibly traumatic and I never want to see it again. <laughs> but seemingly everyone has a story about when they saw E.T. Mm. And that's fascinating. You know, hundreds of interviews and they, everyone has a, like, oh, my God, I saw E.T. and I was never stopped crying. Or, you know, films like that come up time and time again. Dirty Dancing, huge. Always get Dirty Dancing. Oh. Well, The Dance with Penny. I, I, have to, I have to forgive that. The Dance with Penny is too hot. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is too hot. Too hot. <laughs> That's some dirty dancing. Yeah, right. It's an aptly named film, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. The, the film I think is the greatest film of all time. Well, there's a few, isn't there? But Singing in the Rain doesn't come up enough and Don't Look Now doesn't come up enough. Oof. But other than that. You know what? Julie Christie literacy is at an all-time low. I'm really concerned about it. Yes. McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. Shampoo. Come on. Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland in Don't Look Now is the greatest couple acting of all time in cinema, if you ask me. Ask me. Okay, who's okay. the... <laughs> You've answered it, but look, great. I love Donald Sutherland, too. He just had a birthday, too. And one of those people yeah. who... I just think of him as the same as he's always been, but he's, like, extremely old now. Yeah. We have to, like, cherish the Donald Sutherland we have. Yeah, He's 81, yeah. Same birthday. Me and him have the same birthday. That's great. Oh. Me, Donald Sutherland, Pamela Anderson, and David Hasselhoff. What a night out. Yeah, oh, wow, that's exciting. Mm, I've just got Lori yeah. Laughlin and Elizabeth Berkley and, well, nice. Jackie Anassas, but she's dead. So, unless we're doing a seance. <laughs> we can. It's your birthday. <laughs> I will always love Donald Sutherland because I was first introduced to him in the film Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, correct. Yeah. With Kirsty Swanson. Yeah. The original Buffy. Yeah. Nice. He's a brilliant thinker. I don't know if you're up to date on Christy Swanson recently. <laughs> Woof. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't we don't, we don't talk about her anymore. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> No, I I love that idea, too, about films and, like, what they mean to people. Because whenever I think about a film that I've watched with friends mm-hmm. um, at, like, home, you never really have a memory associated with it, and, the, and except for trying to remember, like, who was there watching it with you. Mm. But when you go to the movies, there's always a story of, like, how you got there, what you were doing before, maybe what happened during the theater. Mm. Like, I will never forget the fact that I accidentally saw unfaithful with my grandmother because we like thrillers like we grew up a thriller household and i was like like oh my god let's see this we love richard Gere." (laughs) it was not the film to see with your grandmother (laughs) but diane lane one of the great great faces ever in cinema i absolutely love her Mm -hmm. brett what's the movie you've seen the most times that would surprise us like a friend of mine recently revealed that she has seen Pocahontas like 30 times and now now and now she's down a friend because that worries me. I would prefer who, who not to know somebody person? who's seen it 30 times. I love that. I love that. Listen, Pocahontas is an incredibly problematic film, but with some absolutely banging tunes. Oh please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
It's hard to fully hate on it. The film, I don't know, this wouldn't surprise you if you knew me, but the film I've probably seen the most because of various reasons is The Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh. Mm. It's probably, which is also the other greatest film of all time. I mean, honestly, we don't have that many rad Dickens adaptations. I would say that's probably the definitive Christmas one. Carol. Oh, true, yes. Vanessa Williams, come on. Vanessa Williams, iconic. Iconic. Divas Christmas Carol. Oh, I've never seen it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, you've got to see a Divas Christmas Carol. It is Vanessa Williams oh. as this, like, former pop star um, who's, like, been a bitch. Obviously, she's Scrooge and turned on everyone else that she used to be in the group with. Uh, and then she's confronted with um, how awful she's been on Christmas. It used to air on VH1. All the time. Um, literally oh, all the yes. fucking time. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. Maybe that'll top the Muppets. Maybe so. But, you know, Muppets Muppets are pretty good. Muppets are pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> I feel like we could talk to you about movies all day, but, you know. You can do. It has been um, lovely having you here. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed this. Um, I'm now going to look up Kirsty Swanson and Oprah and Angelica Houston. Oh, please. Okay. Well, have fun reading the Angelica Houston interviews and... I am so sorry for what you're about to read about Christy Swanson. Yeah, it's, it's not good news. It's not good news. Oh, no. Oh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll just keep it in my head as Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Donna Summerlin. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Last week, Lizzo released her latest music video, Rumors, and unfortunately, it is not a Lindsay Lohan cover. (laughs) Nor an entire Fleetwood Mac album, yeah. (laughs) Lizzo doing You Make Loving Fun. I want to hear it. Go ahead. (laughs) Uh, It features a very pregnant Cardi B, just like Normani's Wild Side video did. Everybody's getting a Cardi feature right now. Surprisingly... When you put these two polarizing um, women, uh, I don't even want to call them polarizing, to be honest. But when you put these two, when you put Cardi B and Lizzo together, people uh, on the internet go crazy. Yeah. First of all, what do y'all even think of the song before we get into the controversy? Because the song for me is not giving. It isn't giving, but it's it's not remarkable in its mediocrity. I have felt mm. that the ooh that was. So mean. <laughs> <laughs> that was like a, an actual like Simon Cowell type r- r- comment. Oh. Get Doreen on a panel. <laughs> <laughs> Put on a gray Henley. Yes. I actually do mean that as a compliment, which is to say that I think with the exception of Dua Lipa, the hyper pop girls, I would say... I'm not a fan of Wild Side. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of Rumors. I honestly wasn't even really a fan of WAP. It feels like 
the, you know, people, music critics and people in the industry talk about this all the time. There is a need, not just a desire, but an actual need to make songs that are going to rate on TikTok, right? And so mm. a lot of this music is like reverse engineered to like please this like outside economy. And mm-hmm. when I heard rumors, I was just like, this is another TikTok song. Mm-hmm. It feels like, I can't say that I've ever been a fan of Lizzo's music per se, but I've always been a fan of the way that she really stays true to herself. What her sound is just not my sound. Rumors does feel like kind of like a dilution of what she has done in the past. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like nobody else is really wowing me. So I still take like real issue with the ensuing controversy and all of the various phobias that are wrapped up in it. So that's my... Your TikTok comment reminds me of every time I listen back to hung up by madonna which now has become like elevated to like confessions on a dance floor is maybe her best album whatever i listened back to it and i realized this is written for ringtones like ring 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 on the telephone which they broke i remember you could buy all these ringtones at the time and i wonder if in the future we'll look back on this and be able to just hear the the tiktok influence every single time because i'm praying it doesn't last forever this tiktok era but you never know it's like gaga and beyonce too mm-hmm. yeah yes i forgot about ringtone music i'm on my video <laughs> phone right now <laughs> uh, it's and it's not even just tiktok streaming in general why this song is under three minutes and i know that these songs are getting shorter and shorter um so that people keep replaying them on streaming services but this one is one of the rare ones that literally sounds like it was cut off before it finished it's Mm -hmm. building up to a crescendo at the end you want to hear the bridge again you want to hear the chorus again but it just sort of like ends it's a very weird listening experience, I would describe my relationship to Lizzo as sort of the same as yours, Doreen. I respect Lizzo. And honestly, Lizzo concerts and seeing her at music festivals uh, are some of the best fucking experiences of my life because she goes in for a live performance. But I've never been a person who really sort of spins the music outside of hearing it in the club or right. hearing it at her concert. Right. You know, And so it's just, it's just not for me. Um, but as a friend told me, Corny made her rich, so let her go ahead and make a song again about the rumors and the haters, etc. You know, we made a joke about Lindsay Lohan, but the kind of rumors by Lindsay Lohan are every time by Britney Spears. I am so obsessed with this like sub sub genre of song by a pop diva that's like everybody's talking about me and it's throwing me in, into an existential crisis, but I'm going to pretend that. That doesn't matter to me, right? It's like what I based my identity on when I was eight years old. And so I felt it was like, if you're going to open that door, right? You're making a song that has been kind of like, its form has been preordained by the exigencies of the internet. And the song is about how people talk about you on the internet. I need it to really go to that place. Mm -hmm. And it didn't. And then ironically, in some of the really devastating TikTok that video that Lizzo made in response to, you know, people saying all these terrible things about her or in Cardi B's tweets defending her, then you have, like, the realness of it, mm-hmm. you know? The song feels like a facsimile of, like, the true pain that these women go through. And so I thought that was, like, ironic. She ain't saying real shit. It's not real. That's it. She's not saying real yeah. shit. I mean, like, 
as a writer, I am constantly thinking about that thing Fiona Apple said about Louis C.K. Um, when she had said that at first, because she knew him, that she expected when the allegations came out um, that he was going to do some self-reflection and be really honest in his comedy the way that he had been before. And then when he wasn't, she called him a coward because the only reason to be making art is to sort of examine yourself and really be honest. And I think that's why we've been loving recently like younger artists like Billie Eilish or Olivia Rodrigo because they're being honest at such a young age in a way that younger pop stars who we grew up with weren't sort of able to be. And you would expect a woman like Lizzo who is so open on the internet combating fat phobia and racism, etc., to have something more to say than what the lyrics of this song are. The lyrics are very kids bop. They're very <laughs> inspirational, sing in the car. Like, it relates to everyone, and yet it relates to no one. But if you took her tweets and put them over a beat, that is what I want to hear. I want to hear the real anger. I want to hear that she's actually talking about something. When she even references when people were dragging her for that juice cleanse that she did, um, during the pandemic, it's referenced in one line, and it doesn't really say anything at all in the song. And also, the, I really hate the line where like she yells, like, black people invented rock and roll. I'm like, okay, is this Schoolhouse Rock? <laughs> okay, but I will say, you just brought up Billie Eilish. Her, her last album contains a bunch of songs that, to me, are responding to this particular moment of celebrity in being Billie Eilish. Like, it's about 2021... I'm confronted with the fact that I've achieved so much. What, where can I go from here? Is there any place to go? And I have to say, even though I love a lot of the music on that album, namely the song Oxytocin, the lyrical content felt like a letter to fans you read one time. It made me want to revisit it less in the future. So I almost mm. wonder if when artists start responding more directly to situations like this, if they're, you know, uh, limiting the, potent, the, the replay value of their music. Mm. Mm. They need Rodney Jerkins. Because yeah. when Britney <laughs> says go. that she's overprotected, that still slaps years later. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like, even like, like remember when uh, Dixie Chicks did uh, Taking the Long Way and they're just, here's a song about having said something shitty about George W. Bush. Now I'm listening to it now. It's like, man, I can hear the Nokia phone I had at the time. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's wild that we're, our, what we're talking about right now is a fairly like innocuous song. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then it creates this like truly deranged, depressing response online. People mm -hmm. calling. There was that horrible, horrible tweet that called uh, Lizzo a mammy, which is mm -hmm. a first of all. If you haven't seen freaking Douglas Sirk, do not step into the room. Tell them about Douglas Sirk, okay? Do not tropes that you don't understand in the tweets. And I, like, just don't. But also, the thing that I, I think this sometimes gets lost when we discuss the response that Lizzo engenders in people, people mm -hmm. in general, right? But also, a lot of black women mm -hmm. i've seen a lot of the fat phobia coming from like these intraracial or like same gender spaces and i feel like that's what's like tougher to tease out you know which is that women are looking at her and drawing all these conclusions and making all these projections and i almost like care much more about that weird like internalized hatred 
and misogyny mm-hmm. than I do like whatever like you know blowhard white guy is saying about her online. Yeah, I feel like you know this has been a constant thing that Lizzo has unfortunately had to deal with because I feel like you know when she had first come out, um, she was constantly dealing with the fact that people said that her music was for white people, right? Right. You know, and I think that that also comes from, you know, like our own community, people wanting to like dislike her because they feel like this music isn't for us. And I get that that's why she wants to be like black people inventing rock and roll and being like, I'm making black music. I'm a black woman making music. But I don't know, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard seeing that stuff lobbied at her, uh, especially when you think that, like, people get that all the time, you know? I mean, Whitney got that when she first came out. Right. You would think being co-signed by Prince would be enough, but, you know, Lizzo has the struggles. There's sort of something about both of these women being on a song for me, too, because this happens to Cardi all the time, too. Anytime she does anything... People are constantly attacking her, not in the same ways. Um, but I remember, like, literally when Wildside came out, like, um, Cardi was apologizing to people for ruining Normani's song. People saying, Why you put Cardi on this song? Attacking her, having Normani releasing, like, tearful um, messages about how happy she was to have Cardi on the song. And then weeks later, you have Cardi having to do that same thing for Lizzo. It's unfortunate that Lizzo just has to, like, internalize all this every time that she releases a project or does anything. But I would also say that it's also unfortunate that the intensity of her responses, um, which I love, aren't matching the music for me. I think something that's nice, though, is we are getting a pop culture pregnancy kind of glamorization moment which we have shockingly few of like I'm still thinking of the Demi Moore magazine cover like that's still the definitive version you know we had Beyonce's um, reveals like Amy Poehler on SNL you know like what what, MIA what, what else at yeah, the MIA. yeah but um, it's like under 10 still so <laughs> yeah. it's like I guess it's like a minor revolution every time this occurs still <laughs> yeah Cardi's pregnant with success and with a child um, you write for I the New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what? What's the New Yorker? Um, you know, obviously, people. It's much easier to you know be cynical about certain things in pop culture. But I have to say, it's like nuts that every time a pop girl drops a song, Cardi B is on it. Like we have, <laughs> we are experiencing something that like <laughs> it's just never really happened. Yeah. I would say with this consistency in pop music per se. If we want to talk about hip-hop, R&B, that's different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a moment, you know, what Kim was on every track and all that. But mm-hmm. I think that it's like, we are entering this era where, like, when it comes to the male rapper, he is becoming obsolescent. Yeah, You have a summer that's being defined by who was the biggest male rapper at the time. It was DaBaby, right? And then he, like, literally is the architect of his own downfall. But at the same time, it's being countered by Cardi B being, like, the representative, the ambassador for a lost art in my mind, which was like the rap pop duo. And so I think that we like need to acknowledge that this is like really amazing that women, especially rappers, it's not just her, there's Rico, you know, Cash Doll. There's so many women who I think in my mind, like if I was 15 years old, if I thought about what rap is, I would associate it with women MCs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't associate it with men. 
And I think of that course. that's like amazing. And Iggy dropped her album this week, you know, <laughs> the end of an era. <laughs> oh, dear. It's, it sounds like this could be the beginning of a lament for, if we're talking about pop and rap features, the end of Snoop Dogg culture, which, um, mm. remember for the longest time, it's just like, here we go, the you know, mumbled 16 bars about the members of Pussycat Dolls or whoever's around. <laughs> you know? Right. It was always like a Snoop or like a Nelly or like a Ludacris. You throw on something, but now... I've really enjoyed that women are co-signing each other. They are the people that I'm constantly listening to because, you know, like when I was growing up, they were the people who I gravitated to. Mm -hmm. That's why I gravitated towards Kim and Foxy and Trina, you know? I was like, that's what I wanted to hear. And it feels so great, like going out now, hearing hip hop all the time, you know, like even in like a gay bar setting because it's pop music, uh, because it's women. I understand this is incredibly subjective. Am I wrong? Are like the four most prominent female rappers, also the funniest rappers. Cardi, Megan, Missy, and Lil' Kim. Like, to me, when I think of, like, raps that, like, also make me, like, gag laughing with what they go uh, mm. go to, I'm, like, I'm laughing every time. Why you leave off Nicki? Oh, and Nicki. I, uh, the fifth one, yes. But also for bringing up Nicki, we need to have a different conversation. Right now. <laughs> Jeez Louise! Yeah. Uh. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I also want to, like, some of the new girls, too, are, like, hilarious like doja cat yeah who yeah. is not even just a rapper like she truly is i mean she's like the liza minnelli i know flo <laughs> millie is hilarious to me dicks up when i step in the party yes <laughs> i mean azealia had the funny lyrics yeah right mm-hmm. um and you know sweetie is doing her thing you know i love sweetie <laughs> i love her too she because she understands her assignment and she that does is to sell me a Big Mac yes. and Sweetie's <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and sour sauce. <laughs> called, oh, Sweetie and sour. I remember yeah. that, yes. Yeah. I tried it. It was stressful to my body. Um, but I want to also, on that Sweetie meal note, I don't think everybody knew that they had done meals for like BTS and also for like Bad Bunny before. Uh, and now with how the Sweetie meal has blown up, I'm, I just keep thinking like, are they going to do this collaboration again with someone else? Because I'm like, the internet already has like all these jokes about the Sweetie Meal and other artists doing it. Will it be passe or old to do like a meal with like another artist after this? Mm. I want them to go beyond musicians. Mm. You know, okay. I want McDonald's. If you really want to be the monoculture, make the OJ Simpson meal. I was just. <laughs> <laughs> AHS impeachment is coming out. <laughs> what is your Ryan Murphy meal? McDonald's. Really challenge yourself. Like maybe like the two-headed nugget that looks like Sarah Paulson or something. I'm trying to think of how we can work this. Oh, they could. Yeah, they could bring back those little, uh, you know, the McDonald's like Halloween pails they used to have. Oh, uh, uh, you literally just woke up something in my brain that has been dormant a long time. Pails. Yes. Yeah. Bring back the pails. They gonna steal your idea, Dorian. You know somebody from McDonald's is listening. I'm gonna DM them, ask for my money if they do. <laughs> uh, all right, well we're back. It's time for keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. As usual, it is Keep It. Doreen, I'm going to let you go first. You're the All guest. Right. 
Thank you. I'm just going to keep it real short and sweet here. I believe that when Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck <laughs> got back together, they opened a portal, right? That took us back to the Bush era. Nothing is simple about this, by the way. You've really been transformed my brain. Go ahead. <laughs> what a lead. <laughs> it's a horror film that we're living in. And in this first act, one of the actors that has come back is Maureen Dowd, who wrote a completely unnecessary op-ed in the Times this past weekend about Barack Obama's birthday party. Barack Obama had a big birthday party on Martha's Vineyard. There was some drama because he had to disinvite some people, which total Leo moved to do. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if Dowd was, like, not on the list (laughs) or she was disinvited, but she wrote this completely obsequious column that reminded me of the worst of punditry in the 2000s, which was just like, there is real shit going on right now. And you want to sit here and mix metaphors and do bad literary analysis. The op-ed is called Barack Antoinette, I think, like a play on Marie Antoinette. Mm -hmm. But then the first couple of paragraphs are about the great Gatsby. So what are we doing here? What are our texts? And here's the thing. The Baz Luhrmann, Sophia Coppola multiverse is like getting real confused. Marie, Marie Dowd was giving you a lookbook, okay? She was like, I don't have an essay, but I've got Marie Antoinette. I've got Great Gatsby. I've got References Nero fiddling coming. while Rome is burning. What's happening? And here's what I have to say. I'm not, I've been on, you know, I've written many criticisms of the Obama administration, of the Obama celebrity complex. So I do think that he can be critiqued, obviously. I'm not one of those black people who's like, Barack Obama is my lord and savior. However, that critique is never applied to his white age mates, okay? Mm -hmm. Nobody was, Maureen Dowd was not writing these op-eds about Trump having parties at the Mar-a-Lago, which he owns, by the way. Obama doesn't own Martha's Vineyard. And I have to say that I was both, like, annoyed at the column. Like, I wasn't really mad. I was annoyed, like, we're doing this again. And then also by, I just think, guys, just let her write her shit. You don't need to share it in this way so that we're having, like, a meta conversation about why Mm -hmm. this thing is bad. And so it's not just her that I'm mad at. Oh, my therapy isn't until this afternoon and yet I'm talking in that in those sentences but more just there's just other things going on in the world right now it just made me like really sad to see that kind of analytical energy being thrown in her direction when like there was an earthquake in Haiti literally like the same day (laughs) that op-ed was published you know and we have had this disastrous um, situation in Afghanistan um, so sorry to get so serious, but it's just like, guys, real shit matters and we don't need to take the bait. Mm. I think most op-eds in the New York Times are not useful. And now he said it. Louis, <laughs> <laughs> yes. what is your keep it this week? Honestly, this keep it is, it could be a huge unending keep it. That's like, it's sort of a mountain of trash that keeps building. So I'm just going to shoot down individual parts of it. Take your time, quickly. Pastor. All right, well. Okay, so Jeopardy has not... Pastor, wow. All right. I'm thinking about it. All right. Jeopardy has picked, quote-unquote, two new hosts, which is to say Mike Richards, the producer who did a couple of weeks of Jeopardy after Ken Jennings did, um, is now the official host of Jeopardy. And 
Mayim Bialik, who I th- was one of the better guest hosts for me, um, is going to take over primetime specials of Jeopardy, which, by the way, this is not an entirely new phenomenon. I guess they're moving certain tournaments to primetime, so maybe she'll have more to do than we think. But what bothers me about this is clearly this is positioning, oh, it's not just Mike Richards taking over the show. We're giving some to Mayim Bialik. No, he's hosting the everyday Jeopardy. So I want to say keep it to the rollout of this story, which is clearly trying to obscure the fact that he, I don't know about gave the show to himself. That is like not exactly right. But what was presented to us as a good faith search for a host probably was just Mike Richards assuring himself, oh, it's going to be me. Because in retrospect, half the hosts who tried out for the show would never have given up their permanent engagement to try out this show. Anderson mm-hmm. Cooper's not giving up his gig. You know, Katie Kirk said she straight up doesn't want to take the show. My friend Buzzy Cohen, who was a contestant on the show, he gave it a shot. Ken Jennings seemed like sort of an obvious choice to replace Alex. But altogether, it just feels like eight months of, I don't want to say wasted effort since... I think we discovered that what Alex Trebek brought is pretty singular. And that also, the thing he had, we don't need for the show to continue. I mean, it is reading questions. So I think people will get used to... um, I, I think people will get used to Mike Richards, but at the same time, there's just a general ickiness about the whole thing. And I think also, my final complaint is, while I'm sure he will end up doing a fine job, nothing about Mike Richards as a host to me pertains particularly to Jeopardy. I feel like I wanted somebody else who has a real, just a a sense of trivia culture and a sense of, I don't know, intimidating intelligence. And I find his affability a little bit more Wheel of Fortune than Jeopardy, which is not meant to be an insult. I watch Wheel of Fortune, even though Pat Sajak upsets me. So anyway, I just find this whole situation quite fraught and a little weird. And there's... Uh, allegations about Mike Richards uh, pertaining to his time as a producer on uh, The Price is Right, which he has responded to, and uh, I guess is still an ongoing conversation, but it's just a Nikki situation, and I wish it were less Nikki. Mm, kept touching those yachts. <laughs> right. Um, no ski-do for you. Side. Yes, right. <laughs> no. um, what about all the LeVar Burton controversy? Okay, well, I was thrilled that he got his shot. He gave interviews where he was like, I don't know. He, he basically said... I'm destined to get this job, which felt a little crazy to me, honestly. <laughs> felt um, a little better, O'Rourke. Yeah. He was, bor- oh, he was born dear. to be in it. Imagine being destined to run Jeopardy. I, I, right. I, <laughs> Imagine praying that hard to Merv Griffin specifically. But he ended up doing pretty well. He actually had a lot of character in the way he read clues, which I felt a lot of the other hosts were lacking. That said, when he started the week, it was the worst episode of Jeopardy all year. It was just, he, he kept missing, the readings were off, the, the relationship to the contestants was off. Hosting is a specific skill, and also one that's not like reading Rainbow. I know the internet is congratulating itself for associating the idea of reading with trivia, but they aren't actually like a Venn diagram situation. So it wasn't always destined to work out. I thought Robin Roberts was really good. She was excellent. She was excellent. Mm. One of the best hosts. Yes. If the auditions were actually auditions and it seems like they might have just been a smokescreen for a decision that had already been made. But I do think she was the best host. That's all I wanted to say. She was <laughs> also also nailed the patter with the guests the best too. You yes. know, like I kind of thought other people, I mean, the other a lot of the other hosts are interviewers for a living. She was the one who really seemed like I don't know, she gave you that kind of today show energy, you know, mm-hmm. of like, let me welcome you into a conversation. Well, you know, too bad Meredith Vieira is booked. Uh, you, 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 I can't go there again. You know I was obsessed with her. <laughs> 
So my keep it goes to something that has been taking over my TikTok and it's been taking over Instagram because it's been taking over TikTok because a lot of my friends on Instagram just post TikToks. A lot of them post really good TikToks, though. Shout out to Amina, who always lets me know True what curator. TikTok I need to be watching. A TikTok curator. That <laughs> is what I want from people. Uh, curate your content more. Uh, but I was introduced to the Alabama Rush, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, the sorority rush process um, at the University of Alabama, which um, hilariously has girls who are rushing, uh, looking into the camera and stating what they're wearing for the day, like their outfit of the day. Um, you know, it would be like necklace, Claire's, earrings, Kate Spade. Uh, but then like every other outfit is like, Sheen. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Sheen, which I also do not know how to pronounce. You pronounce it like Jennifer Coolidge pronounced Shaiz. <laughs> Shaiz. Shaiz. <laughs> uh, shine. Uh, anyway, this is a clothing brand that apparently has a grip on the girls. Oh, okay. Um, I don't I don't know about this. It's sort, it. it's sort of it's sort of it's it's a fast fashion. It's sort of like ASOS. Got it. But like just like the most unethical fast fashion brand. Mm. Like you can buy dresses for $2.50. It's me- it's disposable clothing. You put on the dress, you take a picture for Instagram, and then you literally have to throw it out because it's so poorly made. They also um I mean, all fast fashion does this, but Sheen is, like, very predatory when it comes to stealing designs Mm. from... The Urban Outfitters um, move. Yeah, but to an extent, that's, like, really, really egregious. Um, And their clothes are ugly. (laughs) Is this also a situation where you order it and it shows up to your house mysteriously fast? Like, how could this be possible? Yeah. Yeah, like, real sweatshop vibes. You order it now, and then you're like, actually... The dress is coming from inside the house. Right. (laughs) They're out the door. Um, Which, by the way, before I even get into the Rush controversy, I want to say that this, in another way, is a thing that I've seen white people doing online that was taken from black queer culture. Because I feel like if you haven't seen like ballroom videos where like um, oh, yes. you know people are talking about like what they're wearing, it's like mm-hmm. the dress, Moschino, the heels, Valentino, like that. Those videos I felt like started to circulate online, and then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. white people started doing them. But I'm obsessed with these sorority rush videos where these girls were doing outfits of the day. Um, now everybody is parodying them, but. My keep it goes to all of the controversy surrounding Michaela Culpepper. Um, she is <laughs> a mixed race girl who was rushing Alabama. She became sort of a star, and then she didn't get into any of the houses. <gasps> she wow. didn't get into any of the houses, and also has Sean King posted about this? <laughs> <laughs> Scammer. Sorry, continue. He's like the skin of Keep It. Pops up <laughs> random moments. Yeah. You, you, know, you know he is busy collecting money for Afghanistan. 
<laughs> You're in Haiti. <laughs> um, Michaela um, was like one of the stars of this TikTok trend because she's not white. And of course, the internet was rooting for her because they were like, yeah, go ahead, girl. Get into the sorority rush. Um, whatever. Find a sorority in Alabama. Uh, she did not get into a sorority. And then also, she was briefly shadow banned on TikTok. Uh, she got access again, but it's because people were accusing her of using a tanning bed to <gasps> blackfish people. And she had to come out and say, guys, I'm mixed race. <laughs> That goes up the ladder at TikTok like that? Wow. Uh, and then Who gave people, them the literacy to know what blackfishing is? You know, I don't know. But also, people have come out and said that she used to bully them in high school. Uh, and which, if you are rushing a sorority, I assume you bully people <laughs> in high school. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all got to get better with the cancel attempts, okay? Like, if you come out and say somebody was a bully in high school, I'm like, so they were popular? <laughs> Like, what, what what level of bully are we talking about here? I think the best advertisement for um, sorority culture is still Scream 2. I love that house. Delta Beta Zeta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the murder's not as fun, but I mean, that's how I wanted to live, like that. Yeah. You know, um, anyway, it's a, it's been a fun diversion, but but I'm I'm sad for Michaela, but I feel like she's going to be okay. She'll be better off, honestly. Being Not a being mixed, in a white sorority. Being a mixed race girl at a sorority at the University of Alabama doesn't sound like it's going to end well. Which only desegregated in 2013, the sororities. So, Is this when they like got the internet? How, how are you talking about? <laughs> Alabama was not Russian to let Negroes in. Let's yeah. just say that. Oh, <laughs> um, it would be fun to see this with, um, you know, some black sororities, but I feel like um, they're much more um, secretive about their business than right. white sororities, you know? Yeah. Also because black sororities, they have a life outside and after college right yes in a way that like really scares me (laughs) (laughs) you think kamala and all the akas are gonna kill us (laughs) it's and it's amazing because like your lack of knowledge about the akas and them is absolutely seen as like you not being like a real black person it's just like i'm sorry i didn't go to (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, my school b- banned greek life you know um so <laughs> my mom is a delta i grew up in a delta household and i don't know that much about delta sorority and most of what people know is either from their parents or from watching school days so that's another <laughs> internet thing where people try to assert you know, binaries. It's like, oh, you don't know about rushing and black fraternities and sororities? No. I'm sorry. I didn't go to Grambling like my mother. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I went to NYU. I don't look good in pink and green. <laughs> pink and green, I think, is just one of the craziest fad <laughs> color combinations we've ever had. It's just so wrong on certain people. Again, I always think of the movie Young Adult, Charlize, and that. I'm like, whoa. It's so 2007, exactly. Mm-hmm. Juicy couture, you know, yeah. But yeah. it is a color combination that looks good on me. 
So right, you could do that. Yeah. If if I did it, you'd be worried, shall we say? <laughs> okay. Also, lastly, which reminds me, Dory, do you remember the controversy from years ago when there were like the black gay AKAs? No, you gotta tell there, me about there were, this. There were, I think there was just like a group of like black gay men who were like dressing up in the AKA colors oh, and trying to do like the lines and stuff. I know that homophobia was simmering. <laughs> <laughs> They should join Lizzo's team. (laughs) Give her an edge. Yes. (sighs) All right. Well, that's our episode. Thank you to Brett Goldstein for being here with us. And thank you to Doreen. What a fucking pleasure. Slay. I truly am so honored to have spent this hour with you two. I think you're both so great. I know. Your third appearance on Keep It. I love it. Call that a hat trick. (laughs) <laughs> is that is that what that means i'll google it after <laughs> this isn't a hockey podcast don't do that to us again okay uh if you bring up if you bring up hat around me i'm just gonna start singing sondheim so <laughs> nobody wants that <laughs> this early in the morning uh all right we'll see y'all next week Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston, and our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is me, Ira Madison III. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. And hey, stay safe out there. And thank you to our wonderful intern, Nye Sterling, for helping us produce the show all summer. Famously, I love interns. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not.